This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. There are many Americans that look at data and say that climate change is having a severe impact on our planet. There are other people that don't necessarily believe that. And in many cases, those naysayers also believe that worrying about climate change will have a severe impact on economies around the globe. But what if our capitalist culture could actually mesh with efforts to impact climate change and everyone could be happy? Peter Kalmus is an atmospheric scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. And aside from his work, he has authored a book about that idea. It is titled Being the Change, Live Well and Spark a Climate Revolution. It's great to have Peter joining us today. Peter, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. Um, I should mention briefly that I'm speaking on my own behalf here. Correct. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I, aside from your work, what was it that was driving this idea to do a book like this? Well, you know, it was 2010, and um, I'd been getting increasingly concerned about global warming. You know, the more I read scientific papers on it, at the time I was actually doing astrophysics, um, but I got increasingly concerned about it. I started thinking about, you know, the fate of my kids. Um, I live in Southern California where it's fairly warm, and um, I don't like heat waves at all. Yes. <laughs> I get really grumpy when they happen. So, um you know, I, I took a look. I realized that I wasn't really doing anything myself. So I took a look at how my actions were translating to carbon emissions. And I realized that one of the biggest things that I was doing to emit carbon was flying a lot. So academics fly a huge amount. Um, as you know, they, they go to collaboration meetings. They go to sure. conferences. Yeah. Um, so flying had been 75% of my emissions, and that's being really generous to the planes. I was flying about 50,000 miles a year back then. So I knew no matter what else I did, you know, I could give up meat. Um, I could bicycle a lot. Those were the, like, the second and third biggest changes that I made in terms of reducing my emissions. But nothing would really matter as long as I kept flying that much. So then you make the change. How so? Well, you know, um, over the next few years, I just uh, – I. I stop flying so much because I would get yeah. on a plane and I would just feel really bad. Like I shouldn't be here. Like, what am I doing here is, um, is the conference that I'm flying to, I'm going to give a little 15 minute talk, um, about, you know, some little aspect of my research. Is that worth the emissions, which, you know, as I learn more about how long this carbon is going to stay in the atmosphere and how long for, for how many, you know, hundreds of years and, you know, the, the impacts of climate change, um, have several time scales, um, but you know the planet's going to be warmer for a, a long time. Right. Uh, the carbon's not going to completely come out for you know tens of thousands of years. And then there's um, one final time scale, which is uh, global warming is contributing to um, you know a major extinction event, along with just there being too many humans and habitat loss. And um, if you, you know scientists that look at the fossil record of um, recovery after uh, the other major extinction events that happened on our planet, which also had a climate component, um, they find that it takes about 10 million years for biodiversity to recover to the same level it was at before the extinction event. So that's a very long time scale. And so I'd be sitting on a plane, and I would just feel like I, I'll be happier if I'm not here on this plane. Um, and so I just gradually stopped flying. Um, I try to do good work, uh, write good papers, um, and I go to regional conferences, um, right. 
and try to you know teleconference when I can. Uh, so well, yeah. that, that that's part of it is that obviously it, a lot of these changes could be made by by people around the country because we have the technology in order to connect with people live you know around the world. I, I mean, obviously, if you went back you know thirty or forty years, that that technology really was not not in play. Now we do have it. That's right. We we have the technology. What I think we lack is sort of the cultural will to do that. Okay. Um, if employers and you know uh, universities started to say, you know, we really want to do do more teleconferencing and less uh, live travel, um, and if there were maybe more regional conferences, so if there was a shift in culture, it would make it a lot easier. You know, as it is, I take a bit of a hit. Um, there's people that I I would know and that would know me if I flew more. Or if I flew at all, sure. Um, but you know, I'm doing fine. Uh, I, I feel like you know, it's a good. I, I've struck a good balance between um, kind of fast career advancement and doing what you know, following my deeper principles and doing what I know I need to do. So to a degree, what what we just talked about there is, is to a degree the impetus of the book uh, of how we could, you know, we could have. Of various elements of our capitalist culture still be very successful, yet we have the ability to drive the change that that is necessary uh, to to really take try and take a handle on, as much as we possibly can on on climate change. Right. So, and and you know, not everyone is going to gravitate toward voluntary individual reductions. Right. Uh, we need systematic systemic uh, collective action as well. And um, so this is, it's a little controversial for scientists to make any kind of um, suggestions about uh, what policies we could, we could implement to have that collective change. But uh, so, so I'd say I'm speaking as a scientifically informed human now. And, right. <laughs> you know, I've thought a lot about this. Obviously, I'm really concerned about global warming. And there's one solution that I think is just kind of a no-brainer. So if, if that wasn't the case, I wouldn't make the suggestion but uh, a lot of scientists agree with this, and actually a lot of economists agree with this as well, that the, the best step we could take right now to rapidly reduce um, emissions at a national level would be to adopt a, uh, a carbon price. So right. uh, yeah. specifically a fee and dividend. Um, so that would take our system of capitalism and fix this gaping market failure of, of using our atmosphere as an open sewer without, you know, including those costs, the cost to society of doing that in the price of a gallon of gasoline or a ton of coal. Um, so if we charge that price, it could increase every year gradually, so it wouldn't be a huge shock on the economy initially. And it would incentivize everything from food to transport to how we um, heat and cool our buildings. Um, it would push renewables forward because fossil fuels would get increasingly expensive over time. Corporations would be able to plan for the future because it would be a predictable price signal. Right. Um, and uh, the best part about it is, if you return the uh, revenue that's collected as as a fee, so if you don't, if the government doesn't keep that, it's technically not a tax. If the government doesn't keep it, and um, if it's returned to the people, um, it could actually provide an economic boost uh, because then you're putting you know more money in the pockets of everyday people. You're stimulating these uh, these various economies as we transition to the new energy economy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it, it wouldn't be regressive, it would be progressive, because there's a, the, the wealthier you are, the more fossil fuel you likely burn. So um, under this policy, if you were, 
you know, you're collecting revenue based on how much fossil fuel people burn. You're redistributing it equally. Um, so 70% of households would come out ahead, even if they didn't change their behaviors. And if they did ramp down their fossil fuel use, then they'd come out even more ahead. You do. You talk about uh, about the, the idea of, of whether or not some some level of border adjustment uh, is necessary, uh, because if you're going to make this play here in the United States, obviously there are companies that do business outside of the borders of the U.S., uh, that are, are in countries that don't necessarily follow a lot of those philosophies, correct? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's absolutely necessary. So the other good thing about the border adjustment is it would actually turn um, a national fee and dividend gradually into a sort of uh, international impetus toward uh, toward emissions reduction. So you know, it's been we we've seen that to do uh, emissions reduction. Um, kind of uh, at the kind of international negotiations table, like like with the Kyoto Protocol and, and more recently with the Paris Agreement. It's very, very difficult, and you often end up getting something out that isn't as strong as you might like, that doesn't actually reduce emissions as quickly as we need to. But if you have a border adjustment, then, um, you know, a, a country that didn't have a carbon fee uh, would be exporting its products to us, and it would have to pay that border adjustment. And... Um, it would, it would very, that country would very quickly realize that they'd be better off with their own border adjustment for a couple of reasons. First, they could keep that, that, that money uh, instead of giving it to another country. They could use it internally. Mm-hmm. And second, um, the, the manufacturers, uh, the, the factories there, the corporations there would, would have this conundrum where over here um, we'd be producing things with increasingly less um, carbon intensity because we'd have an incentive to do, do so because of the carbon price. Whereas over in another country, um, they'd be competing with uh, domestic producers and they'd want to keep our market share. So, um, they, you know, they, they'd be kind of like trying to ride two horses, right? Um, right. Because they wouldn't have that. They, if, they, if they tried to reduce their carbon intensity, they might have, their products would get more expensive domestically. And if they didn't, then they'd lose market share over here. We are talking with uh, Peter Galmas, who is the author of the book, Being the Change, Live Well and Spark a Climate Revolution. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Uh, the ideas on border adjustment and, and carbon pricing obviously are two things that have been uh, discussed uh, a good bit. Border adjustment, especially in the last uh, few months, as to whether or not that was actually going to be in, in play here in the United States. But carbon pricing as well. If if this were to kind of be formalized, how, how do you think it would? Both of those would be received by businesses, by people, you know, by uh, by a variety of elements here in the United States. Well, this, one of the things I like about this policy, it, it's really interesting kind of the, the political dynamics behind it, and I can't really pretend to understand them thoroughly, but it's interesting um, because there's some support, obviously, coming from uh, a faction of the Republican side, which is calling for uh, a carbon tax. Right. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, progressives who want to see action on climate change, some of them are calling for it as well. Um, there's a, even a coalition of um, uh, energy corporations that would like to see uh, some form of carbon tax. 
Now, a lot of these, um, uh, uh, I guess you could say, stakeholders um, don't, I don't think they, like, I don't think the, the energy corporations necessarily care what's done with the revenue after mm-hmm. it's collected, whether it's a fee and dividend or if it's actually a carbon tax. But what they want is a, a predictable price signal. Uh, I, I think I think they see that, you know, action is coming at some point, whether in the form of uh, regulations. You know, we could, uh, the government could perhaps, you know, not, maybe not this government, but uh, some gov- some future administration could try to regulate uh, our carbon emissions, or there could be a, a gradually increasing price on carbon. And um, from the corporation's point of view, I think planning and investment is much easier if there's a, a carbon price. Um, and I think they prefer that over cap and trade because there's you know less volatility. Sure. Yeah. Um, I- interestingly, but I think because uh, some of the energy corporations. Um, are okay with this policy. On the other side, some of the environmentalists have, they, they haven't embraced it maybe as, as quickly as they otherwise might have, because I, I don't, I don't think they've, they have a hard time um, pushing for something that, that energy corporations are, are okay with, that energy corporations want. They, yeah. I think they assume that there must be something wrong with it. You bring up uh, this idea of uh, what you call a steady state economy. Can you go into exactly what it is and how it plays in here? Well, um, as far as exactly what it is, uh, you know, I don't think anyone really knows that the answer okay. to that question yet. Um, but as, as, as someone who is trained as a physicist, um, you know, I, I, this is going to be controversial, I think, on this program. <laughs> But I don't personally think that we can um, decouple our economy from physical resources uh, well enough to continue um, indefinite exponential growth. Right. Um, so, you know, even, even if we trans- transition to a completely information economy, it still takes, um, you know, energy and it still creates thermodynamic heat to, to move bits of information. Um, so the, the problem with exponential growth is that, you know, over a century or over a millennium, you just get very quickly to these really absurd levels of size that just won't fit uh, in, in, onto the finite resource base of this planet. Right. And um, I don't see any way around that um, other than a transition to some kind of steady state where the economy um, isn't based on exponential growth. We're joined by uh, Peter Kalmus, uh, who is the author of the book Being the Change, Live Well and Spark a Climate Revolution. Your comments at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. The, the thing I like in, uh, in the book, and you really do, tr- do try and take this down to a personal level for people, and you gave examples at the top of some of the things that, that you have done, but you bring out a list of, what, uh, 15 or 20 different things that people could consider to just try and do that could be ways to be able to, you know, cut back on their on their personal emissions. Right. So um, I think the, the key thing here is that everyone's path, so people that are concerned about global warming, right. um, one of the best things they can do, I think, uh, to, to sort of feel better and feel like they're contributing to a solution is to actually change their lives. So, um, you know, re- there's so many people on the planet. Uh, global warming is such a huge, overwhelming problem, you know, with seven and a half billion people contributing to it, some more than others. Um, 
So reducing one's own emission isn't going to solve that problem directly, mm-hmm. but it contributes to changing the story, to showing what's possible, to showing that it's possible to live with drastically less fossil fuels. Right. And, and that would gradually shift the culture, renormalize that. Right now, I think it's really hard to see beyond the expressways and the you know, airplanes and the gas stations and you know, the huge parking lots. So we need to start imagining what a world that didn't run on fossil fuels would look like. And, you know, if, pe- if, if everyone just keeps um, burning fossil fuels like they have been, uh, everyone else looks around and says, well, I guess it's not such a big emergency. If sure. people start to change and they start to use less and then they realize that it's actually not as bad as they thought it would be and maybe even better for, for a lot of reasons, which is, which is what I found, that you know, it hasn't made my life less satisfying. It's actually made it more satisfying. I, I think you know, more and more people are longing for more of a sense of stillness and less of this frantic pace of modern life. So there's, there's as I explained in the book, there's, there's a lot of benefits to actually reducing yourself. Um, and one of the key parts of doing that, I, I found, is to actually quantify how much you're emitting from certain actions, because we all have limited time and energy and we can only do so much. Right. So it makes sense to know what your biggest sources of emissions are and to work on those first. It's a really entertaining book, uh, Peter. Thank you very much for, for coming on and and uh, and putting this uh, book together. Greatly appreciate your time today. Well, thank you so much, Dan. It was, uh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. The book, by the way, is Being the Change, Live Well, and Spark a Climate Revolution. The author of the book is Peter Kalmus. Great to have him uh, joining us on the show. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 